Hello and welcome to the new episode of Human Progress Podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to be talking to Axel Kaiser. He's the Friedrich Hayek Chair at the Adolfo Ibanez University. He's a Chilean lawyer, writer, and political scientist. And we will be talking about Chile, about its history, about its uh, famed or infamous economic model, depending on your point of view. And um, hopefully we will get some insights into what went right and what went wrong in one of the most interesting and important Latin American countries. Axel, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So your president-elect of Chile, Gabriel Boric, uh, once said, if Chile was the cradle of neoliberalism, it will also be its grave. So can you briefly describe Chile's economic model, which pejoratively is called neo neoliberalism, but, uh, but other people just call liberalism, and how and when was it implemented? Yes, of course. Actually, Gabriel Boric, he said that after he won the uh, primary against the, uh, his opponent, uh, Daniel Jaue, who is a communist. And um, Boric is a very far left person and he, he promised to basically terminate the neoliberal model. That's what they uh, call it, right? Uh, so there is this idea, and it's not only in Chile, but, uh, you know, uh, scholars all over the Western world have argued that neoliberalism was uh, born in Chile, you know, with the Chicago Boys. So the Chicago Boys were these um, Chilean economists who uh, went to the University of Chicago in the uh, 50s and 60s, basically, and then onwards, 70s and so on, but basically 50s and 60s and 70s, and then uh, they came back and uh, they completely transformed the Chilean economy, which was uh, a statist socialist economist. Uh, we had this uh, socialist experiment under Salvador Allende, who was elected president in 1970. And he, of course, tried to introduce a central plant economy. And we ended up like Venezuela, basically, right? We, we had, uh, you know, hyperinflation, we had, uh, scarcity of basic goods and, and services and so on. So the economy collapsed. And as a result of that, we, we had a coup that was um, led by General Pinochet. And uh, when the military took over power, which is something that actually the parliament asked them to do, not many people know this, but there was a resolution asking them to do that. Well, then uh, they said, well, what, what do we do now? And, uh, you know, uh, Milton Friedman always observed that the uh, military were not really uh, free market people. They don't. They believe in top-down uh, organizations and not in the free market or, you know, individual freedom necessarily. So they at first uh, continued to um, manage the economy in the statist fashion that had been managed for over 40 years, basically since the 30s. Chile experienced this process of, you know, uh, increasing statism and inver interventionism in the economy. And uh, it didn't work out. So at some point through the Navy, um, a book came into the hands of, the, of uh, the military junta because Chile was not a unipersonal dictatorship. It was a junta of the different armed forces, right? Um, and this book was called The Brick, El Ladrillo. It was very thick and it had been a document that had been written by these Chicago boys um, already in the late 60s for um, a possible victory of the then center-right candidate, Jorge Alessandri, who lost to Salvador Allende, right? And, and it was an economic program to solve all of Chile's uh, you know, main problems. And this document, which was called the BRIC, uh, was then implemented from, the 19, from 1975 onwards. Uh, this is the same year that Milton Friedman and Arnold, Arnold Harberger went to Chile and, and paid a visit to to their former students, basically. And um, so these ideas were basically um, that you have to embrace the free market. So they were claiming, and this is true, that uh, for many decades, the Chilean economist ha economy had been, um, you know, uh, 
being directed in a very statist way. You had prices fixed, over 3,000 prices had been fixed. You had a protectionism, so there was no free trade, basically. You, you had the import substitution system. Uh, you had uh, government running most of the uh, companies when it came to public services and a large part of the banking sector and all of, I mean, it was a centralized uh, economy to uh, uh, mainly, you know, especially after the Allende regime. And so when Allende came to power in Chicago, was what they did was to, to rewrite this document, taking into account the socialist experience. Allende had been supported by the Soviet Union to, to win the election. That's something we know now. And so he wanted to create a second Cuba in Chile, but through democratic means. That was basically the idea that he had. Um, and, and then uh, among the measures that the Chicago Boys proposed and then later on implemented, the first finance minister was Sergio de Castro, who was one of the main brains behind the, the brick, right? Uh, where, for instance, uh, opening up the economy to free trade, free trade agreements and, and all of sorts of, um, you know, getting rid of uh, import, import taxes and things like that, uh, privatizing uh, state-run companies, um, um, stabilizing inflation because it was very high and it took a long time to stabilize the peso. Um, so they, um, in the end, uh, created an independent central bank for the first time, almost the first time in Chilean history. Um, they got rid of all uh, most prices that were fixed. So prices were freed to be set by the market. And um, they privatized social security. That was one of the most important reforms, I think, probably the most revolutionary reform. And... Yeah, so that very that's a very general you know view of what really, what happened, but it was basically embracing uh, free market institutions, and it was very radical in the sense that you went from uh, full scale socialism to a very deep free market reforms in a very short period of time. So the contrast is uh, you know dramatic between what happened under Allende and what had been going on the previous decades and what happened later on under the military regime and then the democratic regimes that maintained these reforms over a period of over 30 years, basically. So um, the contrast was, was uh, very, very um, stark. And people like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, uh, leaders like them, they were observing what happened in Chile. And so uh, to a large extent, what happened in Chile with these free market reforms uh, was a backlash against the welfare state that then uh, set the stage for what happened in the U.S. under Reagan and the Reagan Revolution and, and Margaret Thatcher in the in the in, in the United Kingdom, uh, and, and that's something that uh, you know left wing scholars like David Harvey to conservative historians like Neil Ferguson agree on. It's 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 it was important uh, during the Cold War. It was symbolically very important, and it was also as an example. Um, of a nation that had uh, managed to become an economic miracle. That's the word that was used for Chile after these reforms were implemented um, as a role model for the whole developing uh, world. And, and in this symbolic ideological fight against socialism, of course, it was crucial that we had, you know, managed to prove that theories of free market really work. Let, let me um, ask, is there empirical evidence that uh, Reagan and Thatcher were influenced by what was happening in Chile? Well, you know, there are um, comments made by, by Margaret Thatcher on the uh, uh, Chilean um, economy. I once read that she had sent observers to see what was going on in Chile. Um, um, she was also very much influenced by Friedrich Hayek. Everyone knows that, and, and, and Hayek also was uh, someone that, that uh, Reagan was well aware of his work and also uh, Milton Friedman, right? And, and so um, I think that the ideas overall of the free market movement have found in Chile a place to, to flourish, to flourish, right? In the context of the Cold War um, that were very symbolic because the presence of the Chicago school and even Friedrich Hayek, he came to Chile two times in 1978 and 1980. 
he briefly met with Pinochet. Also, Milton Friedman briefly met with Pinochet, which is, you know, that has been used by the left everywhere to attack him. But this is complete nonsense. He, he never got a cent from the military regime or anything. He was just giving advice about, you know, controlling inflations and things like this. The same thing that he did with many left-wing dictators in other parts of the world. And then no one complained about that, right? Including, uh, including China. Including China, exactly. So um, so the thing is that uh, the, Chicago, the Chicago school, if they had to pick a place where their ideas and their way of teaching economics as a positive science was most successful and most clearly influenced you know, um, by these professors at the University of Chicago, I think that would be Chile. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I, yeah. I, a couple of points on that, just to sort of set the stage for the younger viewers who do not remember the Cold War. And that was that during the 1960s, the entire world was moving in a direction of greater state control over the economy, greater spending, um, more regulations, higher taxation, and so forth. So the, the, the Chilean model, essentially, uh, was the first one, if you discount Hong Kong, but the Chilean model was the yeah. first one that basically said, okay, we are going to go in the opposite direction. And that is why, as a natural social experiment, it was so important in the fight between communism on one hand and capitalism on the other hand, as exemplified by the Soviet Union on one hand and the United States on the other hand. I was also interested, and, and I just want to reiterate that the BRIC, um, the program for Chilean reform was actually not written for the Chilean military, but as you said, and this is something that I didn't know about, it was written by the uh, by, by a political candidate of the Christian Democrats before the uh, 1970 election. It was simply co-opted by the military later on, but it was written for a democratic for a democratic system. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's very important because there is this theory. Naomi Klein and other people have, you know, put put, put you know in the open uh, in the public debate that it's like uh, they wanted to have a coup, get rid of of the poor, good you know, Salvador Allende in order to have a laboratory to implement these reforms. This is complete nonsense. This is not true. The, uh, the, the BRIC, the Ladrillo, this, this uh, economic project had been written for Jorge Alessandri, who was a center right, you know, wing candidate for the 1970 election. And the Dem Christian Democratic candidate was Radomiro Tomic. So he would have never even, I, I think, uh, uh, in, intended to apply this program, but but with Jorge Alessandri, there was some you know expectation that we might he might take some of these ideas and do something about uh, uh, the Chilean economy, which was in very bad shape. People forget this, but Chile is now the most successful country in Latin America still, but it used to be one of the poor countries in Latin America, like below average in Latin America, right? So so it was a very bad performance. And, and, and so the program was written by the Chicago was among them many Christian Democrats who, who went to University of Chicago, like Alvaro Ardon, for instance. And, 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 and they wrote it to give it to a possible president, Jorge Alessandri. And he didn't win. He lost by a minimal, a minimal margin of, I think it was like even less than a point or something to Allende who got only 36% of the votes. But at the time, the parliament could choose between the two first majorities if now no one got 50% plus one vote. So yeah, that's the story. Um, one more question about sort of historical arcana. You mentioned that Allende wanted to introduce socialism via democratic means, and yet, the Soviets were not particularly pleased with him because they didn't think that socialism could be implemented by democratic means. Uh, so th their support for him, which was there, but it, but it became lukewarm when they decided that he didn't want to opt for a full-scale dictatorship, I think. That's, that's my reading of history. But, but more importantly, at some point, the Chilean parliament calls on the military to take Allende out. So the question I have for you is, if he was committed to democratic reforms, why did the parliament cho change its mind about Allende and called for, its, for his ouster? So Salvador Allende uh, had a coalition called the Unidad Popular, yeah? a governing coalition, and, and you had 
of course, very radical factions that wanted a armed revolution. And he was very ambiguous about revolution or, uh, you know, instit institutionality, basically. And he was a weak president. He, 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 he wasn't really the leader you need for something like a socialist revolution. So in the end, what happened was that uh, his regime was very unstable. And, um, and you had the radical factions putting for um, in, um, pushing for an, a very radical agenda, and, and he was supporting them as well. So on the one hand, he didn't want the revolution like the Castro revolution in Cuba, like fighting with rifles. Uh, he didn't rule it out though, right? He, he, he was saying this is plan B in case our democratic revolution doesn't work. Uh, but he was not ruling out uh, the, the use of violence. He didn't like it, though, because of his personality. He was a bourgeois guy who, who enjoyed parties and, and women above all. And so he wasn't the type of, a, you know, of a guerrilla type of people, person. And, um, and, but they, under his regime, they, they systematically destroyed the rule of law and constitutional guarantees. When he won the presidency, he was forced to sign an agreement that he was going to respect the constitution. It was a constitutional reform. He later on declared that he had signed that only for tactical purposes, so he could be elected by the Christian Democrats uh, at the, in the parliament at the moment. And, and then they, they started with uh, you know, the massive confiscations of lands and properties, the support to terrorist groups uh, that were uh, getting arms from Cuba and other uh, Soviet um, satellites. Um, he was uh, destabilizing the country systematically with this um, rhetoric of class warfare and supporting, as I said, armed rebellion in different parts of the country that were killing innocent people. They were kidnapping, killing civilians uh, and killing military personnel and police officers. Um, so, so it was very messy, a very messy time. And, and it's true that uh, Fidel Castro came to Chile when when Allende was elected and he spent almost a month in Chile, right? Uh, trying to lecture him about how to create a second Cuba in the country. And he was very close to, to Castro, but Castro, Castro saw that Allende did not have the substance to be a true revolutionary who wanted to kill as many people as, as he was you know, willing to do. But other uh, people in the coalition of Allende, they were willing to do that. And, and actually, it's very interesting because there is a general, a KGB general, General Leonov, who gave a speech in Chile uh, 20 years ago or something. And he said that the Soviet Union had shipped tanks and armament to Chile so that Allende could consolidate a classic Soviet-style dictatorship. But they feared that the weapons were going to fall into the hands of the enemy. So in the end, they, you know, they stopped the, the, the shipment. Um, but what happened then was two thirds of the deputies chamber on August 22nd, 1973, they declared the, the uh, regime of agenda to be unconstitutional because of these massive violations of fundamental rights, including freedom of speech to uh, persecuting journalists and, and systematic abuses of human, uh, human rights violations. That's also something that no one says today, but the agenda regime was uh, you know, denounced by the deputies most of them were center-left, large part of them, uh, for being responsible of systematic violations of human rights and to and of trying to impose a totalitarian Marxist regime. I'm quoting literally what the resolution said. And so they asked the military to put an end to this, to this government. The Supreme Court also said that the government was, un was unconstitutional and so on and so forth. And in the end, uh, on September 11, 1973, the military intervened. But the, the, the funny thing here is, that Pinochet had been appointed commander-in-chief by Allende himself. And uh, he didn't want to intervene, uh, you know, militarily against Allende. And when the Navy said, we are going to intervene and, and get rid of this government, then last minute, uh, Pinochet in the army decided to join. But uh, Allende thought to the last minute that Pinochet was loyal to him. And he changed his mind last minute. So this was not something that was really prepared in advance many years or something. They completely destroyed the country's economy and the country's possibility of living, uh, you know, in peace. And 70, 80 percent of people were, you know, supporting this, this coup. They had, you know, it's like if you went to Venezuela right now, how many people would not support a coup against a regime that's starving them to death, right? So um, uh, that's a tragedy, but it's what happened. 
And then you, we had these economic reforms, uh, which was also sort of, you know, a coincidence that in the end, the military did this. This is, Milton Friedman called it a political miracle more than an economic miracle for that reason, because you would not expect military to make these reforms that undermine their own power. If you, if you, if you give, you know, space to the free market and individuals, you are undermining your own power. Uh, and, and you see this, uh, uh, the problem that China has, for instance, with the big uh, companies and people like Jack Ma and people like that, you know, they're trying to, to maintain a balance between the parties, uh, you know, control on power, grip on power and these new business people that can challenge them. So, yeah, that was a... It's a, it's a good example that history is uh, very often contingent, but I think it's very important to get the background straight. That is why I'm so keen on, <coughs> excuse me, keen on uh, talking to you about the background, because of course, how those reforms were implemented and by whom they were implemented, that will play a few, that, that will play a role in our discussion in a few minutes. Um, so before we get onto what's happened in Chile in the last three years, let's just um, pause and, and talk about the empirical results of the Chilean model. What has it accomplished? Both absolutely in terms of absolute changes in Chile and also relatively to other Latin American countries. Yes, well, um, so first of all, we have to understand that these uh, reforms that were uh, introduced in the 70s and 80s, they were kept untouched once democracy returned in the late, well, it was 1990, basically. Yeah, we had, we, we had this constitution that was made in 1980 by the military regime, but basically by the civil advisors of the military regime. And this constitution established the return to democracy in a period of 80 years. And we had a referendum. And the question in the referendum in 88 was, if Pinochet would be a president elected with Congress and everything. So democracy would come back and he being a president or not. He lost and democracy was reintroduced with another president, Patricio Elwin, who was a Christian Democrat. And um, who had been in favor of the, of the coup, but then had been an opponent to the military regime, right? So um, they, maintain these economic reforms. They even deepen these reforms. Like uh, the system has been more under democratic regimes than it was under this authoritarian regime, right? And so they uh, privatized more state-run companies. They uh, celebrated more free trade agreements. They um, deepened the reforms that created, uh, um, you know, the voucher system uh, for schools uh, and so on and so forth. So. Um, they deepened the reforms, of course, they, they, they increased social spending. And, um, and this is the first thing we have, to, we have to consider, right? So what happened in terms of numbers? Um, so per capita income quadrupled. We became the nation with the highest per capita income in Latin America. Between 1975 uh, and 2020. 1975 and 20, let's say 2015. Okay. 2015. So it quadrupled. Um, the middle class exploded. So we, uh, we went from having, you know, as defined by the World Bank, we went from having, I think it was like less than a third of the middle class to um, two thirds of a middle class country, right? A poverty went down from over 50% to less than 10%, people living under the poverty line. Is this uh, relative, is, forgive me, is this relative poverty line or absolute poverty? This is relative by Chilean standards. This is by Chilean standards. Okay, okay, please carry on. Yeah, then um, we had a de decreasing inequality, which is a very, uh, you know, big thing that everyone talks about, that yes, you had economic growth and all of that, but inequality increased, this is not true. Inequality actually diminished over this time period. Actually, the Gini index from 1990 to 2015 fell. It was um, 0.57 and it fell to 0.47. And is this, the, is this calculated by the World Bank by an impartial? Uh, yes, entity? of course. Yes, okay. yes, yes. 
and then and then uh, and then you have the studies that were made by Professor Claudio Sapelli at the University of uh, Universidad Católica, the Catholic University in Santiago. Recent studies show that uh, Chile has achieved social mobility that is comparable to an even higher than developed countries, and you have uh, income inequality that is comparable to uh, developed countries when you take into account the generations, right? Because if you just take an average, which is the Gini index, where you have people who did not go to school or university who are older and you mixed everything, uh, you know, also with people that are going to school and universities, you get a higher um, Gini index, basically. I mean, you get more and uh, more inequality, but if you take into account the generations and you compare uh, my generation to my father's generation, for instance, and, and you take the uh, your gener own generation as a, as, a, as, a, as a point of reference where you say, how am I uh, compared to people who were, who were born in 1981? Uh, then inequality is much lower than in the case of my father who was born in 1947, right? Because at the time, only few people went to university, finished school. Now everyone is finishing university. Not everyone, but a lot of people are going to university or technical higher education schools, and, and almost everyone is finishing school. Uh, so, uh, so the inequality in income has decreased dramatically when you take that into account. And this, these studies were, uh, were uh, done by Professor Claudio Sapelli, and they are very, very good. But of course, in the public debate, everyone or many people opt to uh, ignore them. And so we have the highest human development index in the region, right? And that's calculated uh, by the United uh, Nations. So by the United Nations. It's not exactly biased in favor of uh, of uh, yeah. liberal economic reforms. It's not 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 exactly not not really. Uh, but even you know people like this these statistics, and if you take them into account, um, and and it's very interesting that the same United Nations has this um, uh, program for for development, and they issued a report on Chile some years ago, and, and they concluded that all measures of inequality showed that Chile was uh, uh, made a lot of progress. So even the UN was acknowledging this that I'm telling you about. So um, uh, inequality went down, poverty went down, social mobility skyrocketed. Actually, there's the OECD 2017-2018, a report that's called a broken social elevator. Chile had more social mobility than all OECD countries. Uh, when is measured by the you have you were born to the bottom twenty five percent of income to get it to to you know to make it to the uh, top twenty five percent and so we are better than Germany in that sense we we had better results in the U S than Holland or whatever you know so it's it's really incredible what was achieved in in, in Chile I don't think you have many examples. I heard an economist uh, some time ago say that there is no other country uh, that has comparable numbers in, in, in such a short period of time uh, in economic history, in recent economic history. Um, I am not sure about that because I would have to go and look into it, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me uh, because the country was completely transformed in the period of less than one generation. I mean, my father, when he speaks to me about what, what was it, the country when he was growing up, people didn't even have shoes. Many people, uh, and 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 let alone you know um, houses with electricity and things like that. You didn't have that, and, and so Chile became almost a developed country, and, and this was due to economic freedom. And, and and you have the measures by the Fraser Institute, 1975, for instance. Chile is in the ranking. Uh, the Fraser Cato Institute. I don't know if they were doing it together at the time, but um, they um, they have the numbers. Chile was one of the countries in the world with the lowest degree of economic freedom, and we were extremely poor. And then we jumped, and at the time, Venezuela was the 13th country with more economic freedom in the region, and we, it, it was much more prosperous than Chile. There was no comparison. Like we would envy Venezuela, right? And now it's the, the complete opposite. Chile has been for many years the highest ranked country in terms of economic freedom in the region. Now we have many, many uh, you know, positions in the last uh, five years, uh, but still, and Venezuela is the last one in the world. So um, you can, of course, uh, use these two countries as a, you know, uh, 
case study that, that shows you that when you have higher degrees of economic freedom, you have uh, very good results. So, yeah, I, I wrote a paper for Cato with all the numbers, you know, uh, Cato Journal people, if they're interested in, in really taking a look at the numbers uh, in detail, they will find them, find these numbers in this paper that's called the fall of Chile. Yeah, I'm very, very much encouraging our viewers to go to cato.org and uh, just type in, in the search engine your name, and I'm sure that paper from uh, Cato Journal will come up. So, okay, uh, those were the successes. Uh, what were the main criticisms or what are the main criticisms of the Chilean model and are they justified? Well, the main criticism is that the, the model created conditions where some people made a lot of money and uh, became very, very rich. And most people did not really experience that much progress. And so you have um, inequality, high degree of inequality. Uh, so that's the main criticism. Uh, you have this sort of abusive elites that have used neoliberalism to enrich themselves. And then you have the rest of the people uh, who might have become a little better off, but really are not having the same, uh, experiencing the same uh, amount of progress or same opportunities. And so inequality is the great criticism. Is it true? No, it's not true. Yes, some people got very rich, like in every process you know, of progress you have, uh, people that are going to have more success than others. That's, that's of course, um, uh, inevitable. Uh, it, it's not the case that it wasn't like that before Chicago was made their reforms because you had crony capitalism. It was basically a rent-seeking society and people with good political connections, they would be very well off and the rest would not have even, even the chance to have a stable currency to buy their groceries, right? So, um, so this is not true uh, in the way that they presented. It's true that we have... Uh, inequality, but inequality in Chile has always been more or less, or less the same. Actually, there are some studies and estimations uh, that calculated inequality in Chile uh, since the mid 19th century, 18, 1870, 1860. And they calculated inequality. I don't know how they did that, but they, they did it. And this is serious studies. And they showed that inequality has been measured like using the Gini index. Uh, more or less the same, it, it doesn't matter what regime you have, open economy or socialism. Socialism in Chile did not reduce quality. It, it, is, it is a lie when Naomi Klein, people like that say that. It's, it's not true. Um, and, and what did reduce inequality was the free market. If you take into account, it's still high compared to other countries. Uh, the aggregate Gini index is not high if you take it, uh, you know, you break it down to generations and you do the analysis. Uh, but that's the main criticism. And perception of inequality in Chile increased as a result of this discourse. Of course, you also have, and I don't want to you know, say that this plays no role, the, the talkable paradox that he observed in democracy in America, right? The more equality you have, paradoxically, the more sensitive are people to inequality. Yeah. So, so it, it, it becomes uh, something that um, bothers you more if you are closer to someone and you can compare yourself with this person than if you have two different worlds. Yeah, you are so much so so far in your reality that you cannot even compare yourself to to people on the top. And, and, but Chile became a middle class society, and so the expectations changed, and also that plays a role, right? Uh, but I believe that main the main aspect driving the crisis we're experiencing now is ideology. And it's the and it's that people are not being told the truth, the, the truth, which is that the country has been extremely prosperous and that inequality has has gone down uh, substantially and social mobility has increased substantially. Um, and so that's the main criticism. Of course, if you go back to uh, to the 70s and 80s, you people are well from the, from the far left, they say, no, this regime, this uh, free market, this neoliberalism was imposed under a dictatorship. Therefore, we have to get rid of it, basically. Yeah. Which is a, a very bad argument, because why would you get rid of something that's working and that was maintained under more years under democracy than it was under uh, an authoritarian regime, right? Why would you do that? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up in a socialist country too. And the interesting thing was that um, the critics of capitalism and the promoters of socialism, they always focus on income inequality, how much people are yeah. having in their pockets, but they ignore many other sorts of inequality. So I can tell you from living in communist Czechoslovakia that, uh, you know, incomes were uh, remarkably equal. The, 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 the communists were earning, you know, the communist governments and so on were earning, government officials were earning generally more than ordinary people. So we didn't have a great deal of income inequality, but there was another type of inequality, which is that the communist apparatchiks had their own hospitals that ordinary people were not allowed to go to. They had their own grocery stores, which had all the products that ordinary people didn't have, that they were above the law, you know, very often, that they couldn't be brought to trial for human rights abuses. That's another type of inequality which is, which is never discussed. And so um, um, the, the, the subject of inequality is, is uh, uh, so, so in, a, in a sense, socialism properly applied has created a sort of neo-feudal society where yes. you had where you had the politically connected uh, party members at the top living by completely different rules than, uh, than, than other people. And that's something that should be talked about more. So then you talked about the power of ideology. Um, how, how come that this particular ideology, the, 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 the opposition, the illiberal ideology taken off took off in, in Chile to the extent that it did. Why wasn't there more defense of the quote-unquote neoliberal model? Uh, or alternatively, why did the defense collapse in the view of what you argue are false arguments? So I wrote this book in 2009 called The Fatal Ignorance. And uh, I was predicting that everything was going to collapse because the left, because the left and public discourse were moving, you know, towards you know this program of destroying neoliberalism, um, and at some point we would pay the price because I was seeing even business people endorsing this rhetoric, right, and um, uh, not not completely like a maximalist left wing person would, but they were saying yes, there is too much inequality, we have to do something about it, and uh, and so. The, economy, the political economy of the country was gradually shifting from a focus on economic growth and freedom to redistribution, basically, and, and, and making the state, uh, uh, you know, bigger. And uh, actually, some business people read the book, and then we created Foundation for Progress. I'm the president of the board uh, right now. We have been, over the last eight years, trying to defend the free market institutions. So what happened was that uh, first of all, when the when the Berlin Wall came down in uh, 1989, uh, it was the same time that um, you know democracy went, uh, came back to Chile, and so it was a happy coincidence because socialism was completely discredited, and market capitalism was experiencing experiencing a good moment, and. Um, and so people on the center left, the Christian Democrats who had never been in favor of free markets, really, they said, well, and actually the economy was growing at seven, eight percent when they came into power. Right. So they said, let's keep it this way. I mean, don't go back. Let's don't go back to socialist ideas or statism. This doesn't work. This didn't work. And um, they had also they were afraid that that Pinochet was still the commander in chief of the army, and that if they tried to undo these economic reforms, probably they would have a reaction coming from 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 the military and part of the population. So they they kept this this system, and then they they just you know continued to to uh, to do uh, what you do when you are already you know uh, you know maintaining us some uh, form of institutions, and and you are uh, working according to their principles. And, um, but they never really believed in it deep down in their hearts. This is, this is the center left in Chile. The center left did all these things, but they never really, like Margaret Thatcher or Reagan or conservative movement in the US or, now, or even England, they never really believed in the market. Actually, there is a very famous phrase of Patrice Welwyn when he said the market is, is, is cruel and it creates poverty and all these things. 
completely confused. He didn't know anything about economics. Most of these people don't. And, uh, but, you know, we have to accept it because it has some positive, positive effects. So what, what happened? That the far left uh, never accepted the free market system, not even for pragmatic reasons. And they, from the start, started saying, I mean, said that this was immoral, that we had to go back to a socialist system and so on and so forth. And deep down, the center left, who was, of course, not following this idea, uh, agreed with them, I think, in terms of principle, that the market was cruel. And you need something that's not as cruel and you need government to take care of people. And over the decades, what happened was that this narrative started to uh, become more and more um, hegemonic in public discourse. And the center left started to, you know, gave in and say and, 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 and say to the far left, maybe you are right. They started saying maybe we, uh, you know, should have done things differently and corrected these uh, problems that are created by neoliberalism. And so it became uh, a new fashion to speak about inequality and to speak about redistribution. And of course, you had people becoming very, very rich as well. Um, at a time where the poor were making more progress in terms of income than the, than the rich. Yeah? So these are also studies showing um, the cumulative gains of the, 10 poor, uh, the poorest 10% are uh, five times higher or even more than the richest 10% over a period of 15 uh, years, right? Um, so uh, in the end, this ideology of redistributionism became dominant at universities, schools, the media, and everyone was endorsing this. The Catholic Church, of course, that never believed in the market in, in Latin America, and it, which was very influential. Um, politicians all over the political spectrum, intellectuals and lawyers, philosophers, and so on and so forth. So ultimately, it was impossible to fight against this wave of ideas that, you know, took over the public sphere in Chile. And I was probably the only one at some point who was defending the free market institutions. Uh, and, and a few other economists who were very shy uh, saying things about growth and numbers that people did not understand, um, but on, on defending, making the moral case for the free market institutions, I think I was the only one at some point, and I was being attacked from the right and the left. Uh, so, so, so nice people don't believe in markets. If you want, right, if, exactly. if, if you want an easy applause, you talk in yeah. platitudes rather than defending the market. Yeah, and I was considered very radical because I was saying, like, you know, that we had to defend these free market institutions and that I was a fan of Friedman and Hayek. And I was considered to be a radical free market fundamentalist. Uh, and I was warning them that at some point the left was going to destroy everything because the center left was not containing the left. It was, you know, being the useful idiots, idiots of the left, of the far left. They became the useful idiots of the far left. And the center right, was a shame and you had rich people with a lot of guilt uh, because they had made all this money uh, looking at all this debate and trying to accommodate their positions to what the left was saying in order to feel themselves to feel better about themselves and to look better you know to uh, to the public but what in the end happened is exactly what i predicted they uh, then came bachelet's second term where she uh, really did a lot of damage to, to the free market institution. Well, let's pause that for a said that her plan was to change. Yeah. Let's pause there for a second. Uh, Michelle Bachelet, second, for our viewers, in Chile, you can be a president only for one term, but you can run again uh, later, right? So she was a president for one term and she didn't yeah. use many changes but then she comes back which years were that so she was if i'm i don't if i remember correctly 2006 to 2010 i think she was there and then she was from 14 to 18. okay and in that second term she introduced reforms yeah in the second term the concertation 
was finished, which was the coalition of central left wing governments that ran the country from uh, 1990 to 2010, including her first administration. That was finished. And then the Nueva Mayoría, which was a very radical left wing coalition, which included the Communist Party mm. that had been excluded before, came into power with Bachelet. And she declared that her aim was to terminate neoliberalism. She used that word. Uh, and, uh, and they did everything they could. They had a majority in Congress. So they, had, they passed this disastrous tax reform. They, they, um, they severely damaged the vouch system that we had for uh, school children in, in Chile. Uh, they just higher, free higher education for a percentage of population and things like that. And, and then, uh, you know, um, you know uh, started, uh, economic growth went down, went down from over 5% to less than 2% investment costs and all of these things. And then Piñera came back, Sebastian Piñera, uh, he came back to power and um, because I, th I think this was also Pinier's second term, right? What we are having now, it's finishing now in March, it's his second term. Uh, so it was Bachelet, Piñera, then Bachelet, and now Piñera again, right? Um, he came back promising better times, yeah, that he was going to fix the economy. Uh, and, uh, but he could not deliver, and he didn't do deliver because he was very, you know, um, I, I think unskillful as a politician. He didn't have in parliament, but he didn't know how to use the uh, enormous political he had in his favor to pass some reforms. And in the end, uh, in 2009, had this crisis that everyone saw in the world. You know, you had organized groups destroying the city. Uh, I think that was an element of Venezuela in that as well. Uh, you had uh, hundreds of thousands of people running on the streets uh, because, um, as I, I don't want to say this all the time, but I predicted this would happen and other people also said this would happen. Had a false diagnosis uh, saying that you had to uh, change neoliberalism. You had Bachelet sector making several reforms that produce economic stagnation. And this frustrated people. Uh, salaries stopped growing and all of these things. And then Pinera didn't fix it. But you know, the public narrative was that this was the fault that, you know, of neoliberalism. And the country exploded, and many people were, of course, very frustrated because their salaries were not going up. Uh, you know, there was not, in, no, no, not enough investment in the country due to Bachelet's socialist reforms. It's not, it's not the free market doing this. But people did not see it that way. Because when you have a media controlled by left-wing activists who are not journalists, basically, uh, saying all the time that this is to blame on neoliberalism and the rich, why it's not a surprise that people end up believing that, right? Because they don't have, a, they are not getting the story straight. So in the end, you had 2019. And what did Pinera do? He offered the constitution as a scapegoat for what was going on in the country. Well, let me and just interrupt you there for one yeah. second. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. So basically, uh, it can be summarized as the 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 left comes back to power in Michelet's second Bachelet's second term, and now it's infused with many more far left elements. They introduce a bunch of reforms which reduces economic growth, and as a result of that, people become unhappy, and that's part of the reason for the blowout of these um, of these massive riots in two thousand. Yeah. And then the president, who is Sebastian Piñera, his second term now, has to react. What was his reaction? Well, his reaction was to, uh, you know, gave into the demands of the far left, which consisted in destroying Chile's constitution. Why would they want to, I mean, why did they want that? Well, basically because some fundamental aspects of the free market system that we have in Chile are anchored in the constitution. If they get rid of the constitution, they can go back to socialism, but full-fledged socialism. So now what we are having is a constitutional convention. I was opposed to that. I voted uh, for the no in the referendum to change the constitution. Uh, and then I will vote no 
in the referendum that will uh, you know, be celebrated in order to approve the draft that they are preparing. The Constitutional Convention ended up being controlled completely by the far left. Let's go, through the, let's go through the steps individually. So Sebastian Piñera, first of all, admitted there will be a new constitution, uh, constitutional convention. Then there was an election which elected members of the Constitutional Assembly. And those members of the Constitutional Assembly are now negotiating the terms or the draft of the new constitution. How is that going? Well, awfully because the, the right, center-right political uh, forces don't have uh, a chance of doing anything. And the far left is approving things like uh, the nationalization of natural resources, uh, nationalization and, and confiscation of private property, uh, the end of the um, dominant domain regulation that's in the constitution so that politicians can expropriate your property without paying you know, what you deserve. Um, I don't know, the central bank has not been decided yet, but it's, I assume that they will undermine the independence of the central bank. Um, they are voting in favor of uh, restricting freedom of speech in order to adjust it to uh, the radical left's view of, view of history. They want to create a federalist system. Chile had never been a federal, there was an experiment and it failed dramatically. They want to create a federalist system in the country with different, uh, you know, autonomies increasing the size of government, like creating different local governments, which would be a complete mess. Uh, so it's anything you can expect from the far Marxist left, not in America, controlling a constitutional convention that you are having now. And it's plagued also by identity politics, especially in favor of indigenous groups that uh, do not, not really exist in the form that they are presenting them, because Chile, like most of Latin America, is a very mixed country. Uh, it's not like you have these pure indigenous people living in reservations that doesn't exist. Um, so uh, it's, uh, it's a Chavista constitution, basically. So, so they are actually introducing a racial element into yeah. the Chilean constitution. They which... in, yeah, they are institutionalizing racism, basically. But, but, they are but... even, they're even saying that laws that are for non-indigenous people will not apply to them and that uh, even criminal law will have different sanctions for them for the same deeds, mm -hmm. for the same crimes. They, so if I, they kill someone, they, they don't get punished. If I kill someone, I get punished. If they kill someone, they don't get punished the same way. So that's essentially a full-fledged rejection of the Enlightenment. Uh, uh, absolutely. As, as interpreted by, by equality before the rule of law, Absolutely. And that's exactly right. You, that's exactly right. This is a, a pre-modern constitution based on identity politics and the rejection of the rule of law and reason, uh, which, you know, it's the basis of the Western success uh, in the end, right? The, the maybe, idea of yeah, maybe pre-modern and maybe post-modern, uh, but they, but they post -modern, both, yeah. but they both uh, agree on that. And of course, that introduces another potential source of fission in, in Chilean society when people start distinguishing themselves along racial lines much more than they were used to. That creates a potential for a lot of trouble down the road. So what's going to happen next? What, what is the share of the National Assembly or rather the Constitutional Assembly that has to approve the new draft of the Constitution? And then it goes to the people for a final yeah. approval, and what is the share of the population that has to vote to approve of it? So two thirds of the members of the 155 members have to approve each norm and then the final draft. Uh, and um, then we had a referendum where 50% plus one vote uh, make it happen that the new constitution is approved or rejected, right? And if it's approved, we, no, no one really knows when it's going to, to uh, be in effect because it's, it's a re complete refoundation of the country. It's starting a country, it's creating an imaginary country from scratch. So they're getting rid of the independence of the usual, uh, system, the usual branch of government. They are, just, they are getting rid of the Senate. So they are like, just like the Venezuela constitution did. We are eliminating the Senate. We have a deputies chamber and Senate and they're getting rid of the Senate. And we have now uh, senators that had been elected. They were elected last year in December. Uh, so um, they are destroying the um, unity of the, of the um, 
of, of uh, Chile as a, you know, as a state, a territorial state, a unitary state, destroying that, creating new autonomies with their own governments. They're creating this parallel justice system for indigenous people. They're doing, I mean, they're destroying everything. And so I don't believe that's a constitution that could survive. I think if we try to apply that, the country will descend into chaos, complete chaos. And at that point, you you wouldn't be surprised if uh, people and politicians are starting to call me to to you know to have uh, uh, conditions so order can be reestablished and a new constitution can be drafted that that will really you know work out and that would you know uh, provide the basis for governability because I don't see any chance of Chile with a constitution like that being. Uh, um, you know, stable and uh, not descending into chaos and civil civil conflict and maybe even civil war. Um, you know, I don't believe in civil war because I don't think the armed forces are, the armed forces are going to, to split, but that you will have civil uh, strife among the population and people fighting against themselves. When, when they come and tell the indigenous population, come and tell someone, this is not your land anymore, it's mine, because the constitution says that all the land that we were that were inhabited by indigenous people uh, are to be given back to us. When you start having that insecurity on your property rights and all of that, you will have massive chaos. Uh, and so I hope that the constitution gets rejected, but if it is approved in the way that is, you know, the form that it's taking now, because we don't know if in the end they will moderate some things. I don't believe that, but if they moderate the constitution enough, maybe you will have something that can work. But if they don't do that, you will, will have complete collapse in Chile. I, 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 I am sure of that. Um, and you will have a, a long period of time with crisis. I don't know if the Senate and the Congress, which is much more, much more balanced than the Constitutional Convention in terms of uh, you know, political um, equilibrium, uh, it's almost 50-50 in the Constitutional Convention, the left and far left have over two thirds. Uh, Maybe they could invent something in order to change the constitution after it had been approved. This is things that the lawyers invent all the time to get away with something because you know uh, the constitutional law is a very um, not not as clear as civil law, right? It's it's a very you know debatable and in, very open to interpretation thing, and so. Um, it's a it's a period of huge uncertainty, and and I'm sure that if the constitution is approved, that Chile will will have a, a very very tough period in in, in front of uh, you know in, in the in the near future, and that uh, if we try to implement an insane constitution, uh, we will descend into chaos. I, I'm I'm certain of that. What are the chances right now? How would you handicap? the chances of the constitution being adopted, A, in the constitutional assembly, and then B, in the referendum? I think it's very high. I think it's 80% in the constitutional assembly that they will approve an awful constitution, a very bad constitution that, you, as I said, undermines the rule of law, destroys property rights, uh, creates you know, uncertainty for everyone, uh, and increase dramatically the size of government and destroys the territorial unity of, of the Chilean state and all of that. I believe that's a high chance of an 80 percent and uh, that it will be approved in the referendum. I think it's still 60 percent that it will be approved because I'm see I'm taking a look at the every day at the or every week at the service opinion polls basically and most people say they're going to vote for the constitution. Now that it is the um, the chance that it will be rejected is growing by the day because many people are starting to realize, oh my God, this is not what we wanted, right? It's remember that the, um, the entry referendum, the yes for a new constitution won with almost 80% of the votes. So it was a crushing victory to create a new constitution. But no one expected, I expected it because that's why I voted against it, but most people did not expect to go this crazy. So you are seeing even center left-wing people, uh, you know, saying, no, 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 this is not what we wanted. This is, this is, this is completely uh, unviable and this will destroy the country. So we have to do something about this. Um, and so they are starting to wake up a little late and not with the, you know, energy that would be required in order to stop this 
this madness because it's real madness. Like one of the provisions says that all sentences in the usual system had to include, you know, uh, feminist language. This is this is crazy, with with, with gender perspective. Uh, even in civil law, everywhere you have to include in your language of the census gender a gender perspective. No one know what knows what that means, and you have judges that are sitting there for decades, and they have to be now trained into like that's one detail I can um, you know offer to uh, you know as a proof of how insane it is what they are they are uh, trying to decide and, and, and it's not going to be viable to implement it's as simple as that you know so we will have this uh, force so i'm i'm very pessimistic but as i said i'm i'm uh, raising hopes that the chilean people will you know wake up and they will reject the final uh, version of the constitution if it's very bad well you know constitutions are um, a, a mirror or um, an outcome of the age that they are written in. Um, you know, the United States was very fortunate that its constitution was written at the height of the Enlightenment uh, and it endures. Um, it's very difficult to put uh, a constitution together in this day and age when, uh, you know, in postmodernist relativist world, um, issues such as you raise are at the forefront of people's minds rather than the protection of life, liberty, and property. Um, last question, if I may, um, what lessons can we draw from the Chilean experience with the liberal uh, economic model and the subsequent public reaction? In other words, somebody on the other side of the world, what should they understand about what happened in Chile, what is happening, and what could happen? I think the implosion of Chile, because, I, because it's imploding, uh, is a result of years of having lost the battle of ideas, uh, of uh, you know allowing the far left and the left to create cultural hegemony. That's the Gramscian term uh, I like to use from Antonio Gramsci. They took over universities. This can you can see also in the United States. You can see different parts. They took uh, over schools. Uh, they they control the media and so on. So the, the public ideology that prevails is completely opposed to the enlightenment principles and the uh, idea of a rule of law and uh, free market. Uh, and, and so as you, it's a postmodern constitution because postmodernism in the end uh, exerted enormous influence in the public sphere. And, and so if if something we can learn is that, uh, you know, Hayek was very right when he said it, in the long run, these ideas that define social evolution. And, uh, and this is, you know, something crucial that we have to learn. And it's very important for the United States, I think, also to observe what's going on in Chile, because it's a, Chile is, was the most productive country in Latin America, probably still is, but the, you know, it's deteriorating so fast and it's, you know, it might even collapse uh, soon, uh, that you have, to, you have to understand how human societies are capable of that, of being in a process of prosperity and development, and you would say material improvement for everyone. And suddenly people reject all that and want to destroy all of that uh, without understanding it, yeah, you know, deep down. But, and that's due to the influence of ideologies and they start at universities that start with public intellectuals that start in, and then people start thinking in ways that were uh, not, um, you know, at least so present in the past. And, 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 and then they endorse this narrative and this uh, agenda of transformations. And many of them believe it's going to be for the better, but it's not. Uh, it's going to, to be very harmful. So I think that's that's the main lesson, ideas, 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 and the power of ideas. And that's why we can't abandon the fight for, for freedom, you know, on, in the public sphere. And, and we have to recover universities. I think that's the greatest tragedy in the Western world. We have lost the university and the humanities to postmodern, uh, um, you know, um, fools, because in the end, they are not offering a real alternative either, right? Yeah, so the lesson there is that if you allow people with illiberal ideas to dominate the media, the education of your children, um, from primary school to universities, 
you are going to end up with a population that is ready to embrace illiberal ideas and destroy liberalism. So that's the that's the essence of it. They may call it neoliberalism, but I just call it straight good old liberalism. It is merged in the 18th century and that has served humanity so well. Uh, well, Kaiser, thank you very much for uh, having this interview with me. I uh, greatly appreciate it. I've never been to Chile, although I've been reading about Chile for two decades and I've been a huge admirer of um, the progress that uh, Chilean people have made. And I wish you all the best and also all the best to your country. Thank you, Miriam. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. <laughs>